Welcome to a very special episode of What is American Food? I'm one of your hosts, Hannah Semler. In our last episode, we introduced you to Red Tomato, a nonprofit food hub in the Northeast, creators of the eco-certified apple and peach programs. For the last two months, we have been digging into more of Red Tomato's work, carefully following their multidimensional story and documenting the many lives they've touched. We've chosen to focus this episode on an important partnership forged over the last 20 years with Shirley Sherrod and New Communities, Inc. Red Tomato is now supporting new communities in the quest to nurture and grow Black-owned farms and orchards with a marketing and distribution role. Here's Michael Rosine, Red Tomato's founder, describing a little bit of this work. Red Tomato serves as marketing agent for a very large Black-owned pecan orchard in southwestern Georgia owned by New Communities, which is a nonprofit farm and, I would say, Black farmer rights organization. And we are the marketing agent for a 200-acre pecan orchard. Our relationship with Shirley Sherrod and New Communities is actually 20 years old, but we've really stepped it up in the last three years. Shirley Sherrod's story and the stories of all the farmers she has helped along the way is essential to our understanding of how our food system works. And particularly important is how the entire farming community's experiences of systemic racism have determined the food system that we currently have today. Shirley Sherrod, a civil rights activist, organizer, warrior who turned her attention to agriculture, we're going to hear how she got here, why how she navigated personal tragedy and transformed it into a determination that is rare. Her eye is consistently on a better farming future for Black farmers in particular. Her vision is large, and she is willing to take the small and medium steps necessary today to walk the thousand miles eventually. You will next hear co-host Allie Burlow in an interview with Shirley Sherrod where she weaves her personal journey in with the struggle of Black farmers in the South, while telling stories of how Red Tomato has partnered with new communities over the years. Here's Ali Burlow in an interview with Shirley Sherrod. Shirley, welcome and thank you. We're so honored. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and new communities? Yes, I grew up on a family farm and sad to say during those years, my goal was not to stay in the South and not to stay on the farm or not to have anything to do again with farming in my life. But um, during my senior year of high school, when I was looking forward to leaving the South to go to school in the North, my father was murdered by a white farmer who was not prosecuted, even though there were witnesses. So I made a commitment on the night of his death to stay in the South and devote my life to working for change. So that started during the summer of 1965. And here I am all of these years later, continuing to work with communities and work with farmers to to help with marketing, to help with planning, to, to help with whatever issues they are facing on their farms today. That work also led to creating New Communities, Inc., which is the first community land trust in the United States. We actually organized the land trust back in 1969. So 
there's a bit more to talk about with new communities, but that's that's enough to start. <laughs> Could you describe your history and new communities' relationship to Red Tomato as a nonprofit and perhaps Michael Rosine as well? Yes. Well, my history with Red Tomato goes way back, back in the 80s and, and 90s when I was with the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, organizing farmers into co-ops and trying to locate markets that they could sell in because they were mostly locked out of markets here in this area. So in dealing with the folks at Red Tomato, one of the things they wanted was seedless watermelons that could be delivered from our area to Boston, Massachusetts. I worked with Michael and Betty and others at Red Tomato. You know, our farmers had not grown seedless melons before, <laughs> and they certainly had not grown them to get them in the market by the 1st of June. We would pride ourselves in this area in growing big watermelons and getting them ready by the 4th of July. But with this market, we had to train and and work out all of the problems of um, not only growing the, the melons, but actually transporting them to Boston. So Red Tomato played a key role for securing the markets in that area and helping to to work out all of the problems with trucking and, and so forth to get those products in the stores there in that area. They also, during the winter months, would host some of our farmers to come up and talk directly with potential buyers. So they played a key role in making that project work. You just mentioned that um, some of your farmers were kept out of markets in your area in Georgia. Could you describe a little bit more about that? Yes. In Thomasville, Georgia, the city of Thomasville, there is a state farmer's market. And it's an auction market where farmers would bring their produce through and the, the buyers would bid on it and it would be sold. But our farmers, the black farmers, couldn't sell on those markets. Either they wouldn't buy or they would offer a ridiculously low price. We know that white farmers were getting more because from time to time, a farmer, a black farmer would get a white farmer to take his produce through and sell it. I'm familiar with the pecan growers and the pecan orchardists of new communities. At what point did Red Tomato and new communities shift? So we continued at the Federation to work with Red Tomato on getting produce marketed. But when President Obama was elected, I was chosen as state director of rural development, the first black person to hold that position for USDA. So I actually had to step away from the work for a short time. It was also during that time that New Communities had won its claim in the Black Farmers lawsuit and had actually received the largest payout in that case. So New Communities, we lost all of the land at New Communities in 85 due to discrimination at USDA. We filed a claim and it took so many years, 10 years after the claim was filed to actually get justice. So just as I'm about to go work for USDA, which is something I didn't really want to do, but um, we had never had a person of color in the position. So once I was chosen, I had to serve. And of course, um, Breitbart targeted me 
Mm-hmm. And they don't call it fired, but I was fired by the Obama administration. So I came back home where I really needed to be anyway, and we accelerated the effort to find more land. And uh, we did. So we, on that land was 85 acres of pecan trees. We added 115 acres to that. And as those trees started maturing and producing prior to getting in touch with Michael Rosine and the people at Red Tomato, uh, we were just taking the production to a local uh, buyer who paid us anywhere from $1.35 per pound for um, pecans in the shell to maybe $2 per pound. Which sounds quite low. (laughs) It's very low, very low. As the production was coming, you know, growing because of the new trees, and as President Trump put tariffs on China, which is where a lot of the pecans were going, we knew as smaller growers, because you have some with 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 acres, and here we were with 200 acres, we knew we would really suffer. So it was at that point that I investigated um, trying to get pecans processed. Getting them processed means you could get them processed into halves because you get pieces in the effort to try to get halves. So you would get pieces and halves. So I sat down and wrote Michael and the folks at Red Tomato a long memo saying, Michael, I'm in trouble. I need help. And um, he sent a message saying, you have my attention. We had a conversation and he just jumped right in and he contacted the folks at Equal Exchange to see if they were interested in purchasing pecans from us. And uh, they were. They were not selling pecans at the time. So we then started talking with Equal Exchange about the purchase. So we went from $1.35 to $2.35 per pound in shell pecans to pecan halves being sold at $6 per pound. Mm. Uh, We grow a quality product, so they have had no issues with the quality. And it's just amazing to see the comments from people who purchase them because they, they, I wish you could see them. It's like, they are so good. They're gorgeous. And uh, I order directly from Maria at New Community. So they are available to consumers directly right? As well as wholesale accounts. Yeah, they're delicious. Yes. So that relationship and the things that have happened with um, Red Tomato helping to market pecans and equal exchange has led to the effort to create a cooperative, especially for Black farmers who have smaller acreage, who find it very difficult to get pecans processed this last year, I don't, I'm not certain any of them were able to get pecans processed. There were, last year was a bumper year for pecans. We even had trouble with our processor. He processed early on in October, and he said, we may not be able to get back to you until the end of January, which would not work for us. So we were pushed to try to find someone else to do the process and in the effort to get that done and in looking at organizing a cooperative with smaller growers, there is a need to have our own processing facility, you know, at at a minimum to have the cleaning and processing into halves and pieces. 
And then later looking at other products that can be made from those pieces, because we have more trouble marketing the pieces than the halves. Equal exchange currently is taking all of the halves. I just want to circle back to a minute about your acquiring new communities and the land. You mentioned the lawsuit that you're referring to Pigford case. Is that correct? Yes. See, new communities, we initially had 6,000 acres of land and there was so much opposition in the state all the way up to the governor. There were times when they would shoot at our buildings with us in them. They did all, they diluted our fertilizer, did everything they could to run us off that land. And we held on for about 16 years. We were farming and making money to pay debt and so forth, but we ran into droughts. And um, after the second year of drought, went to Farmers Home Administration locally to get an application for an emergency loan. The county supervisor said, you'll get a loan here over my dead body, which put us into a three-year fight just to try to get an emergency loan which was too long when you farm in the acreage we were farming. So once they got a lien on everything, they could engineer the foreclosure. So that's how we lost all of that, everything we had. In fact, the new owner, we had assets worth over four million. He got it for a million. And then he dug holes and pushed all of our buildings, wherever they were on the property, he pushed the buildings into the ground. And that was 1985. And that's what prompted me to go at that time and work with the Federation of Southern Cooperatives. Um, And land loss, of course, is a major, still a major issue, but even more so then because we were losing land at such an alarming rate as black people that the um, U.S. Commission on Civil Rights had predicted that unless something was done about discrimination at USDA by the year 2000, there'd be virtually no black owned farms. So, you know, those are issues I I started working on throughout Georgia and with the Federation throughout the South. And all of that led to the the Pickford case. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was so busy helping farmers from Texas all the way back to South Carolina that I almost completely forgot about our loss. I was so into their loss. Um, So driving from Alabama one night where I had been there working with farmers during the day, the light bulb went off. Oh my goodness. We were farming in 1981. New communities can file a claim in the Pickford case. We did that. We met the deadline for filing and it was 10 years later when we finally got the word that we we were successful. We were denied initially in a case that was clear cut, which meant we had to appeal. The Justice Department lawyer working against us in our case, she made so many mistakes. And then two years after our hearing, we're reading the paper, she was arrested in California. Turns out she was not a lawyer after all. But of course, they said that would have no bearing on our case. She was working for the Justice Department, you know. So we the, there were so many obstacles along the way. And finally, and we filed in 1999. And finally, in 2009, we received a payout in that case, which allowed us to begin looking for more land. From your perspective, which is also a national perspective, how does the structural racism and the externalized costs or the hidden costs of that racism 
How has it impacted our U.S. food system? It makes it a hundred times more difficult for our farmers to to participate in these markets. If I can just give you one example, which is um, all of these school systems that want to serve locally grown food. But the thing that gets in the way is that, let's take collard greens, for example. Our farmers can grow them and grow them very well, but the school system doesn't want to collard greens in a bunch. They want collard greens that have been cut, washed, bagged, and ready to go in the pot. In order to do that, you have to have an aggregation site and equipment and so forth, including a refrigerated truck, to be able to transport them. Our farmers, because of the lack of access to credit through the years and their efforts to try to survive, can't furnish all of those things on their own. And then accessing programs through USDA, which could possibly help, like the value-added producer grant, it's a dollar-for-dollar match. So you don't have the money to do any of this, and you've been shut out of credit. I can remember even those farmers who were shipping the watermelons to the Northeast, they were trying to just get vegetables into Atlanta, and that was difficult. I remember the bank at that time, uh, made four of them co-signed for a $7,500 loan to try to get an old refrigerated truck that broke down most of the time on the 200-mile drive into Atlanta. It, it, it's just, you know, a thousand times more difficult when the system works against you. And I can think about one example in earlier years when I was dealing with pecans and at the Federation Ben and Jerry's Ice Cream Company at the time said, we want to do something about black land loss. So we are willing to purchase pecans grown by black farmers. At that time, this was somewhere around 1990 to 93, getting a processor. It couldn't happen. I remember at times a couple of people from Ben and Jerry's board came down. You know, we went out to visit processors and every one of them said, tell you what we'll do. We will we'll buy the pecans from black farmers and then we'll process them and sell them to Ben and Jerry's. And they can say they have pecans from black farmers in their ice cream, which was not the, what we were trying to do. In, in the end, Ben and Jerry's actually had to get their major supplier to do the processing. And then they paid the farmers market price plus a premium price, you know, in their effort to try to help. Given all of your experiences and the history and where we are now in Black Lives Matter social movement, all these opportunities, perhaps, where are we going? What is what is the most potent, ripe thing in order to address at a structural level the agricultural system, whether it's through policy, grants? It would be all of those areas, policy, grants. I look at the role Red Tomato plays with us, helping to move that marketing into an area where it's really beneficial for all of us. We're even exploring uh, eco-pecans together to see if that's a marketing niche that we can all use in marketing the product. But uh, helping to get our product into the hands of consumers, the more we take out the middle people, the more we can all make 
So we are just always so happy to work with Michael and the others at Red Tomato to continue to not only market pecans, but just to continue the relationship uh, that's so important to us. And just to pause here for a second, I asked Shirley a question during the interview, and I wanted to end with what she told me. It was about how she could see the value of the work she had done her whole life, full of resilience, but also sacrifice. I can ride through this area uh, of Southwest Georgia and say, you know, I have to save that farm. Or even while I was at USDA as state director, I can drive out to Interstate 75 and, oh, yes, I signed the paperwork for that business over there. And I signed the paperwork for this hotel over here. You know, just being able to ride through and know that you had an impact. I could ride and know that that farm wouldn't be in that family's name if I had not done what I did to to help save that farm. In fact, that became very clear when uh, Breitbart targeted me and said that I discriminated against a white farmer refusing to help him, which wasn't true. And when that hit the news, the white farmer surfaced. I didn't. Need, I hadn't been in touch with him for a long time, but he, while I was on the air, he called in to CNN to say we wouldn't have our farm if it had not been for what she did. So I can see the results, I've, even in my home county where, um, and the school I went to, which was one of those uh, buildings built in the 1950s, Georgia's answer to the Brown Board of Education decision, where they threw up some schools right quick to say separate but equal. And when the school board was building a new school in 2000, you know, we were still having school reunions from when my mother and others were going to school you know, I said to the group, let's save this building, not just to have a building here, but to put something here that can work for this community. And so that we won't ever stand in a vacant space here and say, yeah, that was once a, a, a school there that was one of those separate but equal facilities. And if you go there now, Head Start is located in that building uh, and would not have been able to locate in the county, period, because there was nowhere for them to go. There's a USDA certified commercial kitchen where um, people are using it to produce products that they can get on the market. Uh, there's a worker-owned sewing co-op. Uh, you know, so there, there are many things I can point to and know that because I made the decision to stay here and try to make a difference, some of these things I can I can go to, I can point to. You know, I have a relationship with those people who are helping to keep it going at this point. New Communities has a beautiful site. <laughs> when we first acquired it, it's like, oh my goodness, you know, we didn't know the history, but uh, we've learned that it was once owned by the largest slave owner and the wealthiest man in the state. So something that had a bad beginning in slavery is now owned by descendants of slaves, and we are trying to do all of the right things from that, that site. We're so grateful to Shirley Sherrod for her time and her story. You can learn more about New Communities at www.newcommunitiesinc.com. This episode of What is American Food was produced by Ali Burlow, Melody Rowell, and Hannah Semler. Our music is by Elijah Burlow. You can subscribe to new episodes and sign up for our newsletter at whatisamericanfood.com. 
We are so grateful also to the Betsy and Jesse Fink Family Foundation for their ongoing support to make this podcast possible. Check out more of their work at bjfff.org. Thanks so much for listening.